Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's program is uh, occasioned by our latest UPR Community Book List. The book we'll be discussing, Jesus and John Wayne, is a part of that uh, book list. And uh, the author will join us. Kristen Dumez is New York Times bestselling author, professor of history at gender, uh, and gender studies at Calvin University. Her most recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, presents a 75-year history of evangelicalism. And in the book, uh, she challenges the commonly held assumption that the moral majority backed Donald Trump for purely pragmatic reasons. Dumez says that uh, Donald Trump, in fact, represents the fulfillment rather than betrayal of uh, many white evangelicals' most deeply held values. Kristen Dumez holds a Ph.D. from University of Notre Dame. Her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She's written for New York Times, Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, Christianity Today. She's been interviewed on NPR, PBS, uh, CBS, rather, and uh, BBC, also PBS, and among other outlets. Kristen Dumez, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? No. Okay. Close. It's Dumais. It's French. Oh, Dumais. Okay. Uh, French. Dumais. Very good. Thank you. I'm glad I asked. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me about the title, Jesus and John Wayne's Provocative. Um, what, what are you expressing there? Yeah, essentially it's a, a history of evangelical popular culture and looking particularly at uh, ideas of Christian masculinity, Christian manhood over the last half century or so, and showing how um, these ideals were created in such a way that really embraced a, a, a particular sort of militancy, political militancy, cultural militancy, and their inspiration was largely drawn not from the Christian scriptures in many cases, but from Hollywood heroes. Um, Mel Gibson's William Wallace, from Cowboys and Soldiers, and also uh, the actor John Wayne. Mm. And Oliver North uh, features prominently. We'll get to him uh, later on. Um, so you, uh, I think you grew up in this culture, did you not? Yeah, on the edges of it. I uh, grew up in a conservative Christian community, one that was a kind of ethnic enclave, Dutch Reformed, and so never really identified as mainstream evangelical. But looking back, I was definitely shaped by evangelical values, largely through popular culture, through Christian radio, Christian music. We had one bookstore in my small town in Iowa. It was a Christian bookstore. And so even if you don't attend an evangelical church or identify as an evangelical, chances are if you're a Christian, a white Christian, a conservative Christian in this country, you have been shaped by this value system. There's a scene in the book, I think this is in, in the introduction, in fact, of Donald Trump's appearing in Iowa, in fact, I think at your alma yeah. mater, um, and you're, I think you're viewing this by television or something, um, and you, you're looking at the folks, and obviously, you know, huge number of supporters, evangelicals for Donald Trump, and you say in the book you, you don't recognize these folks. Yeah, yeah, you know, I watched... Uh, Donald Trump made his infamous statement that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose any supporters on the stage of my um, my college campus at my chapel. And I watched this go down. This was in January of, of 2016. And it was just such a feeling of disconnect because I thought, he doesn't know where he is. These are not his people. They're not going to go along with that. And then at the same time, I saw audience members applauding and, and really, you know, rooting him on. And, and that, that sense of disconnect, I think, is uh, common 
for many uh, Christians, for many conservative Christians who do feel a misalignment with what Donald Trump stood for, stands for, and with their own Christian values. So even though I wanted to push back against that, I still had to grapple with the reality that when uh, election came around in the fall of 2016, well over 81 percent of people in my home county um, did vote for Donald Trump. So this development of evangelicalism uh, well predates uh, Donald Trump, right, as you write in the book. In fact, he doesn't appear really till chapter 15, I think it is. Um, so, uh, so this is, where did this start, uh, the, the kind of the developments that you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. This did not start with Donald Trump, and that's why uh, it, 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 it's, it's such a powerful hold. And whether Donald Trump is in office or not, uh, you know, this is the trajectory we're on. So you, know, you can go back in time. Um, what was important to me is to point out that things have not always looked the way they are now. In terms of Christian manhood, there was a time in the 19th century when to be a Christian man was to hold a, a kind of, to have self-restraint, a gentlemanly self-restraint. That was deemed virtuous. There was a time when conservative Protestants were, many were not Christian nationalists. Uh, they thought that was sacrilege. And so the, the kind of alliances that we recognize today, that we're familiar with today, can really be traced to the uh, early Cold War era. In the years preceding that, we have the emergence of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, the rise of Billy Graham as kind of the avatar of the, of the evangelical movement, and all this was happening in, um, in the context of a Cold War. So um, communism was a great threat. It was anti-God, anti-family, anti-American, and the response to that was one of uh, strong defense even aggressive offense, uh, kind of militarism, real uh, militarism, gender traditionalism, and this really takes hold. But it isn't until the 1960s when we see a lot of Americans start to question these core values, values of American goodness, greatness, patriarchy, that evangelicals really double down, and, and these values move to the core of their identity, and we're still very much living in the shadow of that today. Uh, you've said that, uh, I'll quote you here, evangelicalism, we really need to think about it, not primarily as a sign of theological beliefs, but more as culture, even consumer culture. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, you know, uh, evangelicals really like to define themselves by their theology, evangelical leaders in particular. So they'll talk about the authority of the scriptures and uh, conversionism, very important, and crucicentrism, or the centrality of the cross of Christ. And those are their defining features. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, the movement historically, uh, there's a lot more to being an evangelical than those things. And, and this really becomes clear if you look at, um, at the, the issue of race. So the majority of black Protestants would hold to all of those theological doctrines, but the vast majority do not identify as evangelical. They don't go to the same churches, and they don't um, you know, ha- exist in the same communities, and certainly their expression of what it means to be a Christian in the political and cultural realm is vastly different. And so I look at evangelicalism not as a kind of checklist of theological beliefs. There's also the fact that uh, survey after survey demonstrates that evangelicals themselves uh, have very high rates of theological illiteracy, and many hold um, theological views that traditionally count as heresy. So of all that true, what is evangelicalism? 
And I look at it as a consumer culture. Again, you have, you have generations of evangelicals shaped deeply by Christian publishing, Christian radio, Christian talk radio, music, and, um, and this whole world that really informs them, not just in terms of theology, in terms of, of, of doctrine, but much more so in, in terms of Christian living, lifestyles, family values, and that really defines evangelicalism today. Um, so, so give me some examples. Well, you know, one we talk about is VeggieTales. <laughs> yeah, VeggieTales is actually the more innocuous example, but certainly an example of this this really um, powerful, popular culture, right? Uh, so you've got the VeggieTales cartoons that, you know, back in the day uh, were deeply evangelical and were, were meant to shape kind of evangelical values, to, to, to share evangelical moral teachings with the young generation. Now, that's actually an interesting example because the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, is, um, is no longer in control of the, um, of the VeggieTales franchise. But he has been one of the prominent evangelicals to actually push back against this, this kind of embrace of MAGA politics. And he's come under fire for that. And so there's an example of, of kind of a deviation. But what you see over and over again in these Christian spaces with the Christian conference circuit, with Christian publishing, uh, that it's, it's the conservatives who, um, and conservative donors and conservative gatekeepers who really wield a lot of power. And so what gets published, what gets produced, are things that align with conservative cultural and and political values. And those evangelicals who are drawing from the scriptures and their tradition, more of kind of social justice orientation, those are the ones who are often, you know, kind of blacklisted, they're kept off the uh, they're not published as much, or they're um, you know not invited to the big conferences, or they're they're actually pushed out of their churches and their communities. Um, the, so you know, books, films, music, clothing, merchandise. Uh, maybe give me another couple of examples of uh, what what's moving the the culture along. Sure. You know, if you think about evangelicals and family values, you really have to think about Christian radio and Christian publishing. So we can talk about a figure like. James Dobson, for example, you know, child psychologist who becomes one of the most prominent evangelicals in the 1970s. And, and since that time, he's not a theologian. He's not a pastor. Right? He's a child psychologist who's writing about how to raise children. And it's just thoroughly infused with this kind of culture wars mentality, right? And um, when you think about his influence and the influence of the empire that he built focused on the family, millions of people across the country and over time around the world tune in several hours a day to hear this kind of teaching. You have um, books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye on Christian courtship, uh, books like John Aldridge's Wild at Heart, uh, published in 2001 on, on this kind of warrior masculinity. These are, are selling millions of copies. They're being read by evangelicals and small groups and these church groups, read as God's Word to direct their lives. And these are just a couple of examples. And this is really what defines evangelicalism. Evangelicals identify with these values, and if they don't, doesn't matter if they hold many of the theological teachings in common, they're not part of the community. 
so I, I think a big key here is this idea of masculinity, right? Um, so, yeah. so these heroes, of course, John Wayne is in the book. I'll have you talk about him a little later. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I think a big, a big hero. Yeah, and so what we see is over time a, 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 an embrace of of a kind of patriarchal authority as as God's word, and so they'll they'll draw on some scripture passages, ignore other passages, um, but to really really uh, uh, amplify the kind of patriarchal teachings, and then establish those as God's order and God's will for. The, the nation's social order. And so what we see is like a strong, rugged masculinity is understood to be God's design for, for men, and particularly for Christian men, and it's always linked to Christian nationalism as well. This isn't just what God wants for men in the church and for men in the family to lead their families, although it is that. It's also a requirement for a strong nation, and that's really one of the themes of the book, is just how often these kind of family values resources are really about strengthening the nation in a particular way against foreign enemies and also domestic enemies, and this is why it really does fuel this culture wars, us versus them mentality. And so a strong, rugged, patriarchal masculinity is seen as God's will for the Church and also for the nation. Uh, so John Wayne fits here perfectly, right? Um, the, I guess the, the idea of John Wayne, but maybe also John Wayne's personal politics probably fit in here. Yeah, yeah. So John Wayne, not an evangelical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the point here. Kind of secular hero, uh, mythical hero in many ways because of his on-screen persona. Um, but he came to stand for secular conservatives and over time also for religious conservatives as kind of this icon of true American masculinity, this kind of um, you know, traditional, even retrograde masculinity. He was the, the good guy with the gun, the guy who could, you know, was a hero because he could bring order through violence. And if you look at a lot of his um, greatest hits on screen, it was uh, he brought order by, by subduing non-white populations, whether it's the you know, Native Americans and the Wild West, or on the sands of Iwo Jima, you know, Japanese, or against the Mexicans in the Alamo, he, he was, or the Vietnamese in Green Berets. He's this kind of iconic, white, rugged uh, masculinity who brings order through violence. In his person, he also was a strong proponent of conservative politics. In the 60s, he supported Goldwater, and then he became one of Ronald Reagan's biggest proponents. He's also on record um, as saying very racist comments, right? He was against um, de- uh, student demonstrators, right, the counterculture. And so both in his actual person, but very much in what he represented on screen, he was seen as this hero and an example of the kind of masculinity that we needed to return to, to make America great again. Uh, you, I'm trying to remember how you phrased it uh, here. You, you say you became a, a bit obsessed with Oliver North, I guess, in writing this this, this book. <laughs> I did, I but, did. <laughs> I confess to that. Um, yeah, I, um, I, you know, I came across, and I remembered this growing up in these communities, of being really confused about who Oliver North was. Because if I would read, you know, Time or Newsweek, I was, I was in uh, high school, I think, at the time, uh, and I, I would see that he was on trial, and, and uh, you know, he had broken the law and done things that were not constitutional, and yet in my 
in my local community, he was held up as a hero. And so when I went back and looked at his story, so many things fell into place. He was this rugged military hero, and he would flout laws and, um, and you know, authority structures to do what he thought was right. And he, he really did this throughout his career, and uh, that was certainly the case in the Iran-Contra scandal. And what I, what I, what I saw when I went back uh, as a historian was just how much conservative evangelicals despite all their talk about proper authority, um, how much they embraced him precisely because he broke the law to do what they thought was right. And they promoted him. And after he kind of faded from view uh, from the general public, he went on and had a long career inside conservative evangelical spaces as an author and as a hero. Uh, and I'm trying to remember his name now. It's uh, Donald Trump's first uh, NASA security advisor. Um, it seems like he's oh, um, he, he's he's kind of following a similar path. Um, I'll have to look up his name. Um, um, so uh, I wonder. Uh, so so you can point from to this. You can point directly to Donald Trump now. Some of some of the same themes. Absolutely, right? What you see is when you look at at figures like Oliver North, when you look at even pastors, prominent pastors inside the conservative evangelical world over the past decades, you see patterns that make a whole lot of sense of the evangelical embrace of um, Donald Trump. And pastors like uh, Jerry Falwell, Senior, we could talk Gary Falwell Jr. as well, though not a pastor. Uh, Mark Driscoll, these powerful men who preach this kind of militant patriarchy, right-wing politics, and who, um, in the case of Driscoll, you know, very clearly abusers of power, and yet commanded the loyalty, the respect of uh, large numbers of evangelicals, even some of the most prominent respectable evangelicals. And you see these kind of alliances that were made because they, quote-unquote, got the gospel right, but really the alliances were built around uh, political and cultural, a political and cultural agenda. And you see that, so they will justify abusive leaders. They will justify, as we've seen inside the Southern Baptist Convention and other denominations, justify sexual abusers keeping their power, uh, others covering up those abuses in order to prop up these strong leaders. And so by the time you get to Donald Trump in the fall of 2016 and you see uh, the response of evangelicals to the Access Hollywood tapes, that's when you see uh, this is nothing new. We have seen this before, covering for an abuser, and in not just kind of covering for it or tacitly condoning, but the kind of rhetoric that precisely because he flouts norms, precisely because he doesn't embody this kind of traditional Christian virtue, that is why he is the best man for this job. He's the toughest man, and he's going to do what needs to be done. Uh, we're heading toward a break here, and we'll come back to much more to talk about. Uh, by the way, Michael Flynn was the name of the man I was trying to... Uh, Oh, thank you. Re- remember, <laughs> see that. Yes, seems, absolutely. Seems like we see a, that. Uh, Michael Flynn yeah. carried this on. A lot, a lot of parallels between him and Oliver North. Uh, you know, very, very brief ten years national security advisor. You know, got in trouble, uh, had to resign, but now it seems like he's flourishing with with folks who believe absolutely. in Christian nationalism. Yeah. Yep, he's a hero for them. Yeah. 
Uh, well, let's do take a break. We'll come back and uh, talk much more with uh, Kristen Dumay, who is a New York Times bestselling author. Latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, and uh, we'll have that following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Kristen Dumay, author most recently of Jesus and John Wayne. She traces a history of evangelicalism and uh, answers the question that I think perplexed many of us, which is uh, there. You know, there's an apparent conflict between what uh, I guess evangelicals should believe uh, and the man Donald Trump. But uh, Kristen Dumay is saying that uh, no, Donald Trump is the exact fulfillment of uh, where evangelicalism at least ended up um, as of 2016. Uh, you write in the book that, um, I think this is near the end, you say that it, this uh, where evangelicalism uh, did end up and centered around this militant, muscular uh, idea of masculinity, it needn't have gone that way, it didn't have to go that way, but it certainly did, and it's tied into popular culture and I guess the Cold War and some of the things you've been talking about What's the key factor, do you think, why it did go that way? Oh, it's hard to get get really underneath this question and and get to the deeper why. Uh, It could bring some psychologists in, perhaps, or even theologians. Uh, Because to me, honestly, what it seems to come down to is power. Uh, People like power. Uh, Christians are no different from others in that respect, maybe even worse, because they can justify it in terms of righteousness that they can do so much good with it. And it really seems to come down to, you know, who is good at consolidating power. And one of the things that I saw in this uh, research, when I really delved into the history, is that a lot of times in, in the Trump era and more recently, kind of reactionary politics among evangelicals have been defined in terms of, you know, they're just so afraid um, they're facing or, or they feel embattled, they feel like they're losing their rights, and what choice did they have? In fact, when I went back through the history, I saw that we often needed to flip that script. It's not that evangelicals responded in kind of more aggressive ways or or more radicalized ways because they were so embattled. Instead, powerful leaders stoked fear. Powerful leaders told people that they were under threat, even when they often were not, in order to justify their own power, to consolidate their own power. You see that from pastors and churches. You see that in terms of political operatives. And that has really been the narrative that has has worked really well. People give a lot of money to these organizations. People vote in particular ways when they're told to be afraid, when they're told that the stakes are just so high. You say that um, if we want to understand this, um, you have to understand that the, these values seep in. It's a way of life with a sense of identity and community. In fact, that if you uh, talk to you know average white evangelical, uh, they would tell you, no, my church isn't political. Yes. Yes, I hear that all the time. And then I'll go visit some of these churches, and I'll hear... You know, the preacher uh, pray against the evils of big government. And I'll hear, you know, just so many uh, political dog whistles throughout the um, uh, the service. And then, of course, if you go on to Christian radio or, or read, you know, Christian publishers' um, books, uh, it, it's deeply political. And yet, for many evangelicals who have just um, been born and raised in these spaces, it doesn't seem like it's political because to them it is simply Christian. 
this is what it is to be a Christian. This is how you are a faithful Christian, and this is how you're a faithful Christian in terms of raising your kids and in terms of how you vote. And so there's a real disconnect between what people say they're doing and as an outside observer, what you're actually going to see, what's happening in those spaces. Uh, so tell me about, uh, especially the role of men, uh, maybe the role of men and women, but pull uh, um, this out a little bit more for me. What What is a Christian man supposed to look like? So it changes over time, and, and even at any given moment, there are always kind of competing understandings of what what Christian masculinity really does look like. Uh, for example, if you go back to the 1990s, that's when we had this wildly popular evangelical men's movement that most people were somewhat aware of because it really hit the national media in the Promise Keepers movement. And at that time, the the kind of prevailing image of Christian masculinity was a kinder, gentler version. Uh, It was the idea that a man should be a good father, a responsible father, and he um, he should be a servant leader. So yes, he should lead his family and his wife, but as a servant. He should be a tender warrior. So yes, he needed to fight, but that tenderness was really important. And this was the era of what some scholars have called a kind of soft patriarchy. That was common in the 1990s. But by the end of that decade, you start to hear more and more voices saying, things have gotten too soft. You don't want tenderness in the trenches. And we see the pendulum swinging back to a more rugged, militant conception of Christian masculinity that really comes across almost as a caricature. Um, so by the early 2000s, you have this this kind of warrior masculinity back in full force. So to be a man is to be strong, to be rugged, to have big biceps, tattoos, and uh, to know how to use a weapon, a sword, or a gun. And that becomes really a dominant model of rugged masculinity. Now, the truth is most evangelical men don't necessarily live it out. You know, they still might be wearing their button-down shirts and, and khaki pants, but this comes to define, define kind of the alpha man, the, the leader, the man who deserves to lead your church, your movement, um, certainly your nation. And so we see this, this very rugged masculinity, this warrior masculinity emerge as kind of the, the alpha man version. Um, and so this warrior masculinity gets, get, I guess, gets ramped up. I, I guess because the stakes are higher. Is that is that why? Yeah, I mean the stakes are always high. If you look at, at history, you have anti-communism, and then you you have the movement against secular humanism and against the, uh, feminism, and then against radical Islam. Right. So there's there's always a, a, a threat uh, that that can be used in order to to consolidate power. Uh, but certainly, if you look at the last decade or so, um, particularly going back to the election of Barack Obama. Uh, that was perceived as um, it, it, with great alarm by many conservative evangelicals for a number of reasons. He was a Democrat. <laughs> That's reason number one. The first African-American president. Now, uh, there have been movements for racial justice or more frequently racial, racial reconciliation in conservative white evangelicalism. But there is still a, a, a powerful um, uh, legacy of segregationism and, uh, in some cases, white supremacy still in some pockets of this movement. And so some white evangelicals found that disturbing. 
And then you had um, the fact that a small number of younger evangelicals defected from the Republican Party in 2008 to vote for Obama. Um, and that really disturbs uh, evangelical leaders and, and conservative uh, Republican leaders, and they really want to crack down on that and to pull them back in the fold. And, and you have the birtherism avidly promoted by evangelicals, people like Franklin Graham, for example. Uh, you have you know, rumors that he's a Muslim, very widely held perception among conservative evangelicals. And then during the presidency, you have the sea change on LGBTQ with the Obergefell decision and also um, demographic change. And so we start seeing the, this, uh, these numbers that suggest that we are upon, on the brink of uh, the end of white Christian America, right, on this demographic decline, which leads evangelicals to um, uh, really worry about not just their own dominance, but their own freedom. And so you have conversations around religious liberty really taking hold in these communities. All of these things come together to really fuel this kind of narrative of fear, narrative of decline, and of, you know, you are about to lose your power. And, and so it is extremely dire. And you see that kind of uh, language of threat, of fear, and of um, kind of preemptive aggression uh, very much underlying their support for Trump in 2016. He is their ultimate fighting champion, and they want him to be rough and tough. Is Trump, uh, does he continue to be the leader? Uh, it seems like he still has, would would still get the votes, probably will get a large uh, number of evangelical, white evangelical votes uh, in 2024 if he runs again. Absolutely. Yes, you do not see a decline. In fact, you know, a lot of people were thinking they might, thinking, okay, so, you know, Hillary Clinton is out of the picture 2016. Now evangelicals can kind of regroup. They can critique Trump where they need to. Um, and, you know, maybe Mike Pence is a better leader. Um, in fact, that did not happen at all. Um, evangelicals strongly prefer, uh, the majority do, uh, the kind of leadership that Trump offers to that of, of Mike Pence these days. And uh, we do not see any reason to suspect that that loyalty is going to diminish. And so they have um, continued to be his strong supporters. In part, he has delivered, particularly in terms of Supreme Court appointments uh, and the issue of Roe v. Wade. We see the effects of that. But you also see just uh, a widespread embrace of the kind of politics that he has led. And this, this um, I think what's most concerning is evidence of evangelicals, among evangelicals, of, you know, kind of finding democracy less attractive, less appealing. And I think particularly in light of this um, demographic decline, you see some of the tactics shift, shift from kind of trying to get out the vote and trying to promote a conservative Republican agenda versus now uh, really undermining some of our basic democratic norms and institutions in terms of embracing stop the steal you know, interfering with free and fair elections and working to suppress voter turnout. So all of these things are um, are disturbing and, and very evident in conservative white evangelical political spaces. Well, and have you expand on that? Of course, that worries a lot of us uh, to decline in the importance of some people place in democracy. Um, this, this seems to be a very important plank in this, uh, you know, this platform of ideas 
uh, authoritarianism, right? If you get the right leader, uh, you know, keep him or her in. Yes, yes. And, you know, even in the intro to Jesus and John Wayne, I, I cited some um, survey data that we have that conservative white evangelicals, more than any other de- demographic, lean towards authoritarianism. They, they really embrace the strong leader. And even when I went back into books on child-rearing from the 1970s, I was struck as a historian just how important authority was and social hierarchy. And that was seen as the will of God, and that was seen as the key to ensuring God's blessing on our country. And so you have patriarchal authority, men over women, um, parents over children, and God-appointed rulers over um, others. And, and the God-appointed is really key there, because this authority does not necessarily extend to, say, Democrats, <laughs> you know, to, to Joe Biden. Um, the idea is that the proper God-appointed authority is the person who aligns with their political and social values. And so absolutely, when I was reading this, um, looking at the sources, I was actually startled uh, by the kind of seeds for authoritarianism that I saw in this very mainstream evangelical literature, evangelical popular culture. And I think we're seeing evidence of that today. By the way, um, could you envision, you know, Trump will leave the scene at some point? And uh, I'm just assuming, based on our conversation here, that the, the, the leader who inherits the mantle going to be a man, right? Could, could there be a woman uh, Trump-esque figure, John Wayne-esque figure? Uh, it, we could. We could. Uh, I mean, you're right that this is the playbook now, and it would be very—it's hard for me to envision kind of disrupting this playbook. And so you've got somebody like Ron DeSantis, who's, who's trying to give Trump a run for his money. That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but when you look across the Republican field, you look uh, you know, even back in the primary season already, uh, Trump was influencing the way other Republican candidates were presenting themselves. We saw that, I think, most clearly in the case of Marco Rubio, who kind of tried and failed to rise to that level of, of belligerence. Um, you know, we see that in, in Ted Cruz maybe comes closer. Um, but this is this is the playbook. Now, there is a place for women in this ideology, And actually, my next book is on conservative white Christian womanhood and Republican politics. You can look to figures like Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, and uh, Carrie Lake, for example, and see how how they can work within this system as kind of traditionally feminine, attractive uh, Republican women who nevertheless, you know, kind of support this. Um, um, this culture wars politics. And I think that the precursor here, that's, that's really um, significant, uh, and we can learn a lot from her example with Sarah Palin. Um, and she kind of prefigured this model. So there is a Republican femininity that works within this system. Well, let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Kristen DeMay. Uh, she's author, most recently, of um, Jesus and John Wayne. And uh, we'll talk more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking about a book which uh, it was chosen for our latest UPR community book list. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. The author, Kristen DeMay, is with us. She is uh, uh, takes a look in the book at uh, white evangelicalism 
and explains uh, an apparent contradiction. Um, she says, in the end, it's not a contradiction. Why so many white evangelicals uh, went for and do continue to support Donald uh, Trump? It has to do with uh, this idea of uh, muscular militant masculinity. That's where I want to start uh, this segment, Kristen DeBay, where you talked about where women might play as leaders, political leaders. I want to have you talk about, um, you know, a typical household. Um, we've talked about what the man's supposed to be. What about the woman? Yeah, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, it's important to, to note that this kind of a patriarchal ideology would not survive if it want, were not for a lot of buy-in among women. And so in the book, I go back to the 60s and 70s, and I look at popular literature on evangelical femininity. And it's fascinating and honestly somewhat disturbing. Um, teachings on how to be a Christian woman that really emphasize you need to be beautiful. Uh, you need to um, be sexy. You need to um, meet your husband's many needs. And particularly when I got into reading evangelical sex manuals, um, which were very much a thing, still are, huge market for these things, um, I, I was really startled to see how the gender ideology played out in terms of sexuality. The idea was that you know God made men filled with testosterone so they could be aggressive. Uh, and that also meant they would have aggressive sexual needs and not a whole lot of restraint. So it was up to women to bring that restraint. And they did that by not seducing men who were not their husbands. So very high standards of modesty, for example. And if you were married, then it was your duty to fulfill all of your husband's sexual needs so that he would not um, he would not meet those outside of the heterosexual marriage relationship. And this was understood to be absolutely essential for the God-ordained social order. And therefore, it was, it was necessary for the stability of the nation and for the strength of the nation, right? And so uh, what I came to see then is if you follow this out in terms of evangelical history, how um, what this looked like for many women, particularly women then who experienced the brunt of this, who experienced abuse, uh, often sexual abuse. In any case, it was always the woman's fault. Did you seduce him? Uh, you weren't married to him. Even if it was a young child, this would be the narrative. Or it must be the wife's fault because she wasn't meeting his needs. So it very much generated this kind of boys will be boys attitude on the, on the one side, and then a whole lot of guilt on um, uh, in terms of women, their duties, and where they fell short. Um, and so you see this in the 60s and 70s, but it's, it's remarkable how enduring these teachings were around sexuality and around gender and femininity in evangelical spaces, even up to today. Is there dissent? You know, we talk about gender roles you just talked about, uh, the kind of this muscular masculinity, uh, how that applies in politics. Is there dissent to any and all of these ideas? There always is, right? This is, these ideas are always contested, even within white evangelical spaces. You know, if we want to use the, the figure of kind of the infamous 81% who ends up uh, uh, voting for, for Trump, uh, percent of evangelical voters, uh, you still have 19% who don't. And I, I think that's kind of an accurate breakdown um, historically, too. You have the evangelical left emerge in the 1960s and uh, embrace feminism, embrace social justice, uh, embrace the anti-war movement. Um, and 
at the same time, they're always in the minority, uh, what historian David Swartz has called the moral minority. And, and so you have dissenters, you have women, you know, even in the 60s and 70s who are pushing back against this hyper femininity and these unequal um, understandings of sexual ethics and behavior. But they, again, are in the minority. And when it comes to kind of controlling the message and, and dominating evangelical spaces and these distribution networks of massive conferences and the huge, you know, multi-billion dollar publishing industry, uh, that's where you see that this is very asymmetrical. Yes, you have dissenters, but you still have the, the kind of dominant story uh, that really powerfully shapes evangelical values. Uh, so uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, the, the overturning Roe v. Wade. This is a huge victory for long time in the making, right, for white evangelicals and other uh, conservatives. What's the goal, do you think, at this point? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's tough to say what the goal is. You're right. This is uh, for generations now, evangelicals have been working uh, with this in mind. At least a rank-and-file evangelicals have been. The pro-life movement has been enormously powerful in shaping evangelical values really since the early 80s. Now, as a historian, it is important to go back a little further than that. And while it's true that evangelicals and, and Christians generally have long valued life and that there has been historically uh, a strong tradition of anti-abortion in Christian spaces, in evangelical spaces. Uh, there were also dissenters uh, back in the 1960s and 1970s, even within conservative evangelical communities. So that you have, for example, uh, a whole issue of Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of American evangelicalism, uh, talking about the abortion issue and birth control in, in 1968. And the conclusion is, you know, to, is, is abortion right or wrong? It's complicated. It's really complicated. And you'll have theologians weighing in on when does insolment actually happen. And, and you have, you know, uh, issues of incest and, and, um, and rape discussed with sensitivity and, and complexity. You have, through the mid-1970s, the Southern Baptist Convention coming out with, with pro-life agenda, or, or sorry, pro-choice. Uh, that um, abortion was not seen as this um, cut-and-dried biblical issue. It was seen as a matter of choice, a matter of conscience. Back then, in the 60s and, and into the 70s, abortion was seen largely as a Catholic issue, um, particularly in terms of its politics. And so you had some conservative Protestants who didn't want anything to do with Catholics, and so kind of seeded that issue. All of which is to say it's a, it's a complicated backstory. But by the end of the 70s, you see abortion becoming a mobilizing political issue for the religious right. Uh, again, tapping into a pre-existing tradition, but also kind of m moving to the forefront so that even a generation later, it's very difficult to be openly uh, evangelical and pro-choice, and certainly today, that um, it, 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 that is almost impossible in many spaces. So what we see now and going forward is, um, I mean, watching very closely, and you see different voices um, kind of working this out in real time. 
You have some who, uh, you know, we're all about returning this issue to the state. That's what over overturning Roe v. Wade um, did, and that's 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 where their rhetoric was. Um, you know, pre-Dobbs decision. Now that's gone, and now it's now we need a national ban, right? So I'm definitely seeing that. I'm also seeing in conservative evangelical spaces the rise of of, of what's called abolitionism, where there are no exceptions. So all abortion is is um, outlawed and punishable, sometimes by very um, very stringent um, measures imprisonment, um, and uh, so extreme measures, even in the case of rape or incest. And, and so this kind of a hard line emerging, emerging inside evangelical spaces now that they have what they have. So uh, I don't know where this is going to end up, and this is going to be an active uh, conversation inside these spaces and, of course, in state and national politics for years to come. Just about three or four minutes left. Um... I wonder, uh, you have a, I, I was reading your um, uh, book club. You have you have some book club uh, questions on your website, which, by the way, is uh, kristendume.com. Uh, and one thing you noted was uh, your publisher wanted you to leave readers with hope. And you <laughs> you pushed back a little bit. You did put a sentence there at the end, which kind of gives you a little, you know, ambiguous hope. Um, do you think, uh, from your viewpoint, this development in white evangelicalism is not a good development? Uh, do you do you think things can change? Yeah, I confess. I by the time I wrapped up this book, uh, it wasn't a very hopeful book. And when my editor pointed that out and said that you just can't do this to your readers, or you got to give them something, this is too depressing. And and I said, well, this is where I end up. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then he came back around and the next day he wrote again, he's like, Kristen, just give us anything here. Um, and that's when I gave him the last sentence, which is what was once done might also be undone. And honestly, it felt too feeble um, at the time. But he said, fine, um, we'll take it. And, and that was that. And, and I'm, um, since the book has come out, on the one hand, yes, that's been validated because for many conservative evangelicals, for many evangelicals generally, knowing this history does change things. There are many evangelicals who just didn't feel right about about the excesses of the movement, and now that they can see how it came to be, it, it's much easier to say, no, this is the part I oppose. And so I have seen enormous um, kind of response within evangelical spaces. I mean, the book is a is a bestseller because so many evangelicals have been reading it and promoting it. On the other hand, much of the change that I have seen has been um, at an individual level. So individual pastors and individual evangelicals. When you start to try to change the organizations, the institutions, the systems, that's where you don't see much change. In fact, you see the opposite. It's those who are trying to change things, the dissenters, who are usually out of a job, um, and they're on the outs, and the, the organizations, institutions continue uh, to maintain the status quo, or they become even more radicalized, having purged the dissenters. So I'm optimistic in terms of individual change. Honestly, when it comes to more structural institutional change, I'm still pretty pessimistic. Just a couple of minutes left. Um, I, I want to close with, uh, I think, with the biggest worry for many, which is this strain of authoritarianism um, and uh, sort of anti-democratic forces, right? Um, yeah. What, uh, where do you think that's 
going? It seems like, uh, from what you're saying, that uh, at least uh, this uh, subset of uh, conservatives, white evangelicals, authoritarianism is is a central idea and not likely to fade. Yeah, I'm watching this very closely. And what I will say is uh, we have to be very careful here. Uh, We're getting a lot of surveys out now on Christian nationalism, how widespread it is. Over 80% of white evangelicals embrace some form of the idea that Christian America is a Christian nation. Then you have to dig beneath the surface. What do they mean by that? Do they mean just they want to see their values reflected in the government? Well, I mean, that's the case for all of us, whether we're religious or not. Uh, Do they mean that Christians, and particular type of Christians, should have special privileges. Right? That's where things get concerning. When they're ready to say that, you know, the, the constitutional rights or democratic access of those Americans who do not share their values should be abridged, that's when we have to be concerned. Now, and that's really hard to get a measure on at this point. What I can say is that I'm, I'm always looking for very clear pushback inside conservative evangelical spaces against some of these more extreme views, against these more radicalized voices. And that's where I've, I've been concerned, um, because you'll have some who are openly advocating for essentially the end of democracy and for elevating a particular subset of conservative Christian values over those of other Americans. And then I see a lot of um, more moderate evangelicals who are not able or willing to articulate a kind of uh, rejection of that sort of politics. And instead, I see a lot of people who have just been raised um, their entire lives that, of course, you should vote your values, and of course, you should embrace Christian values, and of course, this is a Christian nation. And what we need right now is some of those folks to be able to draw a very clear line of what that means still within a democratic, pluralist society. Um, So that's honestly an open question for me right now. Well, we reached the end of our hour. Kristen Dumay is New York Times bestselling author, professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. And uh, you can find her at kristendumay.com. Uh, the latest book is Jesus and John Wayne, and that is out and available now. Uh, Kristen Dumay, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you very much. It was great to chat. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.